Uh, I've got a fair few questions from the Patreon and from the Discord, so I've got some questions. But uh, be sure to put all your questions in the in the chat, and then I'll answer anything. That person, eight beautiful, eight golden, eight dragon, eight. As a, you ask every time about Bob Dobbs, uh, which makes me think that you probably are Bob. Hey, Bob, how's it going, man? I miss you. Uh, well, I can begin with that question. When's Bob Dobbs' Christmas special? I haven't had the energy to, like, be ready for such a thing, you know, because I know it's going to go on. The next Bob talk I do, I want it to be, at minimum, <laughs> 36 hours <laughs> long. And, uh, yeah, McClu- the, McLuhan, the McLuhan rabbit hole is deep. Um... I'll give it one more minute here, but uh, I guess I guess I'll begin by saying uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. The joyous, lovely season—it's very cozy. Um, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone, and I hope you're all having a good Christmas and the world isn't treating you too badly. Thanks for all your support, and thanks for um, you know listening throughout another year, another full-time year. Um, uh, f- the first full-time year living on my own in the new apartment, uh, which has been joyous and, yeah, nice. So thanks for everyone who supported and who continues to support. So, fair few people watching, fair few people listening, thanks very much. Let's begin with these questions. Uh, when's Bob Dobbs Christmas special? Might as well, yeah, I'll begin there again. Um... Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to do another special, Bob. Uh, I'll probably say the same thing that I've said every time, which has been about a year of me saying this now. Is like, I'm just not. I'm just not ready. I haven't really read. Um, I haven't read enough McLuhan beyond what me and Bob were talking about before. And McLuhan goes off in like a thousand and one directions that I want to have a grasp of the other areas before I do that. So I'm like ready. Um, and hopefully, when we do do that, we're going to do it with um, uh, a guy Cameron as well. So. That should be good. Um, there, so the questions which were coming in from the Patreon and the Discord, the first one was, any thoughts on magical idealism? I actually had to look this up. So this is to do with Holdelin, I believe, the poet Holdelin who believed that philosophy and, philosophy and poetry should be connected or like magical idealism is... Um, is that that poetry and philosophy are on the same level or work in the same way or something? And I think if that, if my understanding of it is right, of my very quick glance of it, of it, then sure, like, um, it, it seems fine, but it's one, it would be like a problem of definitions of like, well, what's poetry? Like, poetry is the thing which really taps into the outside when it's done right. Um, and that latest. I'll probably mention him a thousand times in this Q&A, but in the latest, one of the latest Cormac McCarthy interviews, he says, like, does anyone really, does anyone really believe we're doing poetry anymore? Uh, which I think is a sort of a poignant comment from him. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. But uh, I don't know enough about magical idealism to really make too much of a comment. The next question was, thoughts on D&G, uh, which I assume is Deleuze and Guattari, not Dolce and Gabbana. But my thoughts on Deleuze and Guattari, like, is... Uh, I've mentioned this a few times, and other people always mention this, that a lot of the time when people talk about Deleuze, they actually are just talking about Deleuze and Guattari. They're talking about that madness that comes in with the Deleuze-Guattarian philosophy, right? And... 
I, the thing that, the, the impression I get, so when you read Deleuze, like, and I'm talking specifically about Deleuze, when you read Deleuze, you're getting very much a philosopher's philosopher, you're sitting down, you're reading him comment on other philosophers, um, you know, Spinoza, Bergson, etc., his books on them, his monographs on them, and you're getting a very, yeah, a philosopher's philosopher, it's very difficult stuff, especially difference from repetition, but so when people, a lot of people talk about Deleuze, they, they, they tend to sort of hint a little bit at Deleuze and Guattari. And when you're talking about Deleuze and Guattari, it's like sitting down and having, and this is for me personally, it's like having a big junk food meal that like the juvenile part of you is like, oh man, I can't wait to do this, you know, like nomads, you know, and all, all the, you know, nomadism and line of flight and all these like, you know, schizoanalysis and all this like absolutely bleeding edge of schizo theory. Um, almost like, in a way, like accelerative philosophy and it's super cool. But then the end of this like junk food meal, you, um, you sort of like, man, I'm, I'm exhausted and I don't really know what to do with any of the energy that I just took in. Like, there's a thousand and one ideas hitting you. And I always really struggled to really do anything with the ideas that Deleuze and Guattari sort of put forth in them things. And a lot of people just use them. They take something and then they'll go off and do something about nomadism or the war machine or something like that. But my thoughts on D&G is like, it's extremely fun. And it's, you're like, you're like, it's like the, the amphetamine hyperactivity of philosophy and it's fun every now and again but um you can't really it's like you can't eat junk food all the time and i don't want to call them junk philosophers definitely not but it's the it's sort of like the 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 coffee cigarette and amphetamine equivalent of philosophy and you can't do that all the time you get you you either get burnt out or you just go a bit do lally really um but um as you progress through Deleuze and Guattari's works. One, from my understanding, from reading the bio, the big biography of Deleuze and Guattari together, and from reading as much biographical material as I have read around them, the influence and the actual productive input in those works from Guattari becomes less. And you actually realize once you get to what is philosophy, you're almost reading a Deleuzean work, to be honest. Um, and I haven't read much of Guattari's solo, solo, solo work. Um, yeah, so I'll switch to the questions in the chat so I don't miss them um, is an episode on René Guénon in the works if not please do it I read a book the other day by Robin Waterfield about Guénon and it, it was really quite it was a great introduction I've I've been struggling for a while to find someone to talk about Guénon because he's one of these figures much like Ludwig Klager Ludwig Klager's actually who like they, they misconceive the philosophy and they drag him into something else. So with Gainon, you have a lot of the traditionalists and then he sometimes gets dragged into the right, he sometimes gets dragged, he gets dragged all over the place. And that the, the book by, I think his name's Robin Waterfield, was really good introduction of what Gainon was trying to do. It's a very intellectual work, um, obviously perennialist. Um, yeah, I'd love to do an episode on him, but I need to read more Gain On. And also with Gain On, what that book emphasizes is a lot of people are, you have those, that now sort of infamous, infamous set of Gain On, like that one publisher has done every single book as a small hardback. Um, in terms of the, the, the same style with the, like the red writing on the white hardback. Now, one thing to emphasize that Waterfield uh, emphasizes is that you really have for Gain On, you have to begin right at the beginning of 
those works because the Gainon's personal understanding of Hindu religion is, is like not necessarily a foundation, but it runs throughout. So what you find is actually a lot of people begin right at the end. Um, revolt, against, revolt against the modern world, I think I have it somewhere. And then also the, the reign of quantity over quality, basically that one as well. And they, 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 people take it complete. That whole thing is really a corpus in it. I think it seems to me it has to be taken as a whole. So it'd be a lot of reading. Um, uh, Father John Brown, you always comment very nice things on my videos, so thanks very much. Now that you are Catholic, how did observance of Advent strike you? Any insights? Um, I guess, I mean, I'm going to have to be honest in the sense of humility with this one. Um, I guess my local parishes, maybe they're, they're, they're more of an older parish, so the that, I mean, that's not necessarily tradition, but those aspects of adhering to whether it's fasts or um, uh, whatever the things might be in that, that personal you go away and you do this thing in the sense of the season, they sometimes take the, a, a sort of back role in just keeping the community going because it's um, the county that I'm in, Norfolk, is um, it's a very rural county with a much older population. So I think a lot more is done here just to unfortunately... So sort of keep people going to church and, and just keep the community alive, which so there's there's I think there's maybe a, often a step back of like scaring people off with you should be doing this, this and that. Um, I don't have too many insights there, but I'm sure more more questions about I think there is a couple of more questions about Catholicism coming up. Uh, Cyber, my good friend um, and mod of the discord who I should, you know, thank for all his great work over the years now uh he asks the very important question what is the best burger um i probably like in terms of consistency of every time i've had it many people now know that i <laughs> i say exit modernity but i love mcdonald's and i would say the big mac like the Big Mac hits the spot, like a Big Mac and a Coke, that hits the spot every time, uh, unless it's lukewarm. But something about the Big Mac, something about it just uh, hits the spot. There probably wouldn't be, I like red onion, raw red onion on a burger, I like pickles on a burger, so yeah, there you go. Um, thoughts on Jean-Luc Jean -Luc Nancy? I haven't read um, much Jean-Luc Nancy, I'm afraid, so I can't comment there. Um, good day, James, enjoy your Q&As, cheers, thanks very much. Um, David Mock, can you talk about your peating journey? Any major health changes since you started? The main thing, the main changes I've had since I've started peating is a greater clarity. The brain fog is lifting, especially when you you time the aspirin right. Though I'm not going to condone anyone taking or changing their diet. Like the peat episode was about his philosophy, but I, I do try adhere to a lot of the the peating dietary basic dietary principles of like uh not so much big macs but uh but milk and orange juice but especially the orange juice and the raw carrot salad i mean they're like the raw carrot salad understand that as a supplement and you feel amazing afterwards you feel it's one of the few things where some people take a supplement and they're like it just you know alleviated some something but the raw carrot salad which is just you i i grate the carrot on the slice grater of the grater so it comes out as thin slices and then you have that put over some apple cider vinegar 
just to cover it and then some salt and just eat that one it's delicious but two you feel you feel amazing afterwards you do feel very refreshed and uh, i believe the theory is that the the long fibers you have to grate it long so you keep the long fibers intact and they they brush the east the excess estrogen out of your system is the theory and they also um sort of cleanse your cleanse your gut and i mean pete has this amazing thing about people asking him about um uh depression and some certain mental problems and he says that maybe a lot of depressions might just be down to a problem in the gut like a digestive problem and we're we're now studying more and more the the the, the connections between the gut biome and the, and the mental health and there's like very very clear connections between them um so my major health changes is just yeah excess in energy better digestive health and a it's more that perceive think act thing of of there's no such thing as a diet so someone might say go on keto and then someone goes on keto and they feel awful but they're like well i'll just stick to it because it's said to be healthy it's like well pete's thing would be like if you do it and you feel good and you you have an excess of energy then that's what you should stick to so it's very very holistic and very subjective otherwise otherwise you you're entering into a dogma of 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 diets which you know and that's that's the modern mentality of like well we've we've averaged out the statistics and this is the best thing to do it's like well if you then do that thing and you don't feel good that you know people will be like well i must be wrong but it's like well your body knows the score your body doesn't lie so you know that's pete's mentality what was pete's mentality um yeah oh someone said in america peating is eating while sitting on the toilet i see well i haven't been doing that it's to do with ray pete the uh Raymond Pete, the nutritionist who recently passed away. Um, so, so, would you do an in, uh, an episode on Wilden? What's your interest in him? So, I've now email, I've now mess, I'm in. I'm messaging one person who's very, very interested in Wilden and messaging about the republication of some of his works. And I, 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 I you know, he clearly knows Wilden's work fairly well. So I asked him if he might, and we're we're sort of talking about it. I also emailed John Cousins to ask him if he wanted to specifically tackle because I just think this is it, this is his best. The the rules are no game, and what I love about this, I mean, this is a the, a philosophy book, right? And, and you know, you're flicking through. You're flicking through. And what's my interest in Wilden is, like, I've never really read anything like it. It's like, why has this been forgotten? This is absolutely sort of astounding. The, 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 just the level of comprehension and, re and research. But then you, you flick and right at the end of the book is, is the schematic for a Lee Enfield rifle. It's fantastic. Corey Anton, I also emailed Corey Anton about um, the idea of context theory, which Wilden um, begins at the end of this and then continues through into Man and Woman, War and Peace, which is seems to be a progenitor to what a lot of Bateson and et al. were doing. But I want... I want to try to figure out if context theory was meant to be if this is his own thing that maybe Wilden didn't fully complete or something along those lines. But who knows? There's, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of history there. Um, so what was the end of that question? Um, yeah, my, my interest in him is, is simply because I think system and structure is an absolute hit, hidden gem of research and, on, and scholarship. It, it draws in an unfathomable amount of, of uh, interconnecting things um 
are you interested in would you consider doing an episode on Thoreau's Walden I did um, two talks for patrons on Walden's on Thoreau's Walden um, and I found mostly that I focused on the beginning of the book because there was no point really extrapolating on when he gets into the more poetic writing of his actual living I was more interested in he starts talking about economy um, and you know it's really the one of the progen one of the proto books of you know the the idea of exiting modernity the idea of exit um i haven't read any much else by thoreau um, I mean, there's not tons out there of course but but um maybe i'll find someone i did email the person who wrote this huge like 600 plus page biography of uh, thoreau but they didn't get back to me unfortunately <laughs> Um, so I'd be interested in doing a, an, an overarching episode on Thoreau that actually focused not on as much on Walden because the other stuff often doesn't even get a look in. Um, am I involved in any other Catholic groups outside of outside of my parish, given the age difference? Um, I now help teach uh, catechesis. Um, well, a catechist. I'm not formally done the formal catechism training but i'm helping teach the few young people that we have youngsters that we have uh who are preparing for confirmation um i also do a bible study once a week but that's about it i mean you know in the, in this sort of these rural areas these parts of the world you you there, there isn't as much of a formal community especially for young people because it's just you know some of these areas are quite literally like um 70 percent people who are 60 plus sort of thing so it, it is what it is but the, in that also has its benefits you have a very old and very usually very pious community who have a lot of wisdom and experience so you know there's there's benefits and negatives whatever um just wondering what you make of prisvara especially in comparison to stein keep up the good work um so I'm going to be recording an episode on Eric Pridgevara with Philip Gonzalez. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing all of those names correctly. Um, early next year. Uh, we weren't going to record the other day, but there was problems, uh, internet problems. Um, my my general feeling with Pridgevara in relation to Stein, so the big difference between those two is Stein's focus on the subjective person in relation to God and then Pridgevara's point that, well, we should be focusing on what comes comes down, comes from above, what, you know, grace, faith, these things that come from the Lord. And in the sense that Prisvara has this sort of, maybe not necessarily a critique, but a, well, it is a critique really of Stein's point that, well, maybe if we, if we lean towards this personalism, then the human subject ends up taking the central role and not Christ or God. And I, I think really Stein's point with that is that all we have as individuals, and this is probably why I'm, I adore Stein's work so much is that all we really have as individuals is our is what we have our being right you you can't address any of these questions except from that point of being which is why she begins from the phenomenological analysis from Husserl of we have to go right back to being right back to basics and then you know begin that reduction and get into what is it we even know at all and then from that you can approach you can approach you know, that's what you have to approach God. So it's not necessarily putting the human first in that sense, but it's the sense of, well, all we have is what we consider our subjectivity. But the point with that is, is that 
objectivity and subjectivity often used by mainstream news outlets they're, they're what they they tend to mean in contemporary languages objective means truth and subjective means opinion and stein would really you know that's that's just the way these unfortunately the language isn't very helpful but the point would be that there is this objective truth and actually the subject is always in relation to the objective so it doesn't mean it's it's just an opinion or a bias it just means it's working its way towards towards the truth and stein is a realist phenomenologist so her point would be that the the objects which are of the phenomena which we are you know are out in the world they are real but then they are given to us so we have to accept them as real but it's in but we also can't just completely occlude our existential judgments of them so there is a world and it is given that's almost like an anchor but then we approach it whereas with Husserl it's just phenomenology sort of pure phenomenology which is you, you, you don't really have this given world um so they're different their differences between that their, their major differences is between you know uh, we need to be careful about whether or not we're going to lose god in focusing too much on the subject um what is your thought on Richard Rorty and pragmatism like John Dewey or William James haven't spent much time with pragmatism like at all John Dewey is a name that comes up I don't know much about William James I I, I don't know I don't have thoughts on it because I just haven't spent much time with it thoughts on antinatalism referring to the philosophical angle not the millennial hedonist point of view so the philosophical angle is you know that that well as I understand it that that it's better to not have been because there's so much suffering in life that um you know it's better not to have been ultimately for me i can't see a conclusion that makes any sense for an antinatalist other than suicide unfortunately like i can't really it, why would you continue to live in such an existence which is so awful when you have the option to opt out now the big problem for me with antinatalism is that um, whoever told you that life was, you know, going to be, I don't want to say good, life life is good, but whoever told you that life isn't going to be full of suffering, uh, that isn't going to be hardships and pains and ups and downs. I mean, you know, where did this idea come from that like, oh, you're born, so everything just has to be perfect and right. I mean, that's a very modern idea, but mainly because we've probably shoved away suffering so much that when it comes, it's like, no, this can't be, this is an anomaly. Like, whoever sat you down and, and put this idea into us that life's just meant to be this, like, stream, the, the, and, and pretty much every single mystic of every single... <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty big, big comment. I mean, it'd be hard-pressed to find one that isn't, but... Every religious teaching, even through all, to all the alternative religions and alternative spiritualities that I've researched, Steiner, Gurdjieff, Theosophy, uh, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, they all have a understanding that growth comes from one's relationship with suffering. Uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't have the bad, you can't understand the good. And that's how you grow is in relation to what you do with the suffering that you're handed you know it's it's a very cliche comment to make but i i do like the scene at the end of the third matrix movie which isn't it's a very good movie generally but you know at the end of the third matrix movie the the architect finally meets with um no the neo finally just talks to agent smith i believe who then is talking as the architect and he sort of says like why did why did the world have to be this way 
and the architect says you know we we did build it at one point where it was like utopia it was it was eden and ideal and you just all went mad like you can't really you you know you can't have life without that and it reminds me of that twilight episode right twilight zone episode where the rock and roller guy goes to heaven and he's in his heaven which is a casino and with loads of drinking and smoking and and gorgeous women and you know every time he plays the roulette wheel he wins every time he plays poker he has the best hand and everyone's like oh my god you're the best or every time he talks to a woman they're like howling at his jokes you know no hangovers and this goes on for a couple of months and he's like there's no struggle right every he's winning every time and everything's great basically everything's perfect and this goes on for a couple more months and he's going mad because there's no friction there's no push and he goes to the angel who who led him to heaven and says like what's what's going on i thought this was meant to be like heaven why am i so miserable and going mad about this and the angel says to him like i never said this was heaven and he's literally in hell like hell for a human being is just no struggle you 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 can't you can't ground yourself without any struggle or suffering so um yeah um uh thoughts and anti- they're, i mean they're my thoughts on antinatalism really i haven't really got i haven't got much time for it because it's like well okay i don't know what to do with it after you've said that i mean why why are you going on to exist i mean schopenhauer came schopenhauer maybe didn't go far enough because he, he he came to fairly bleak conclusions but then there was some odd things that kept him going and yet he adhered to asceticism and things and at the the end of the day if life is so awful and you would maybe understand that the pleasures of sense were at least somewhat enjoyable and it's enjoyable to eat delicious food like why would you end up being an ascetic like schopenhauer did i mean that never fully made sense to me um but i think that was his almost like his 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 stand his principle against that um what's the point of reading anything besides the bible um well I'm Catholic, so it's scripture and tradition. I mean, we're not even really officially, we're not obliged to read it as Catholics. I mean, we hear it every week in church, but scripture and tradition. So, you know, I mean, you should be reading other things as well as a Catholic. So, but what's the point? I mean, point is to explore life and to explore what, what human beings are doing and explore what comes from people's investigations of what it is to be alive. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a strange question in a way because, I mean, you could probably get certain people who might say, what's the point of, read, of reading anything else other than being in time or whatever their book is, and it's ultimately well to explore life, to examine it. You know, it's fun, it's interesting. Um, did, oh, sorry, I missed one there. Thoughts on Karl Marx. I've not been, uh, I'm not being condescending, genuinely interested. There's not a lot of materialist social analysis uh, on this channel. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm obviously not a Marxist, um, but I'm happy to do episodes on Marxism. Marxism interests me, of course it does. It's this huge thing. Um, the, the, I guess the the reason for me that maybe there hasn't been so much on Karl Marx is usually people who use Marx have now have now use it in in a form of leftist politics, which just doesn't personally interest me. So I that it's not in the sense that if I spoke to people about these types of politics that I would be like condescending and being like that's wrong. It just doesn't interest me, so I wouldn't have much enthusiasm about the conversation um, in terms of... I'm not even going to say whether... I never really say on the podcast whether or not the person... I agree with the person I'm talking to, whether it's I consider it morally right or morally wrong or philosophically right or wrong. I'm interested in ideas. But when the ideas don't interest me, which m- most of leftist politics doesn't, 
modern leftist politics doesn't you know it's not going to be a very good conversation but in terms of like Marx and I'm really interested in the moment though I haven't read too much around it but I've been thinking about it a lot it's like what happened to Althusser like I want to talk to someone about I want to talk to like a modern Althusserian and be like what's going on because Althusser was this huge figure and obviously then he went mad and etc etc so whether or not that was the the downfall but I sort of want to just see like I'm really interested in why philosophers who were once literally the biggest thing just fall off so but I'd be happy to do episodes on Marx sure but it's about finding someone who maybe you know I almost like want to talk to a Marxist who well I want to talk to someone about Karl Marx who isn't a Marxist maybe and just look at these texts I mean I'd be happy to talk about Grundis you know Land has these uh, Land draws on Grundis in some of his work in a very interesting way um, I wouldn't mind talking about that the theory of like eventually capitalism will break and what 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 the, the maybe the general Marxist sentiment around that is now um, yeah it, it's more a case of finding the right people um, views on monarchy have I watched the Prince Harry Netflix series the, the the notion outside of the UK that we live we in the UK live under a monarchy is, is has been dumbfounded since post World War II this is a monarchy in the sense of tourism um, you know it, it, it's a it's an aesthetic people say oh well the Queen has to sign off the laws and it's it, yeah well she did have to sign off the laws and the King now has to sign off the laws I, I don't really I, no one in the UK uh, is. I don't really see anyone in the UK as as thing that would even entertain the idea that we live under a monarchy. Um, but in, in terms of my views on monarchy, um, I think it's 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 one of the most politically consistent and stable forms of government you can have. I don't really believe in a political solution, which I was going to get to in one of the other questions. But it, it would be my preferred mode of existence and once again the problem with a lot of people thinking about monarchy is when we had monarchy we didn't have the technological innovation that we have now so people think well people do that general problem of conflating a political form which was in the past with all the other things that were in the past so they think about monarchy and they think oh well we're going to be serfs in the fields again well it's not how it's going to work, right? It's like monarchy isn't the thing that caused, you know, dysentery in those times, right? That was a, it was an issue of hygiene, not monarchy. Maybe some theorists could dunk on me on that, but you know, uh, it would be my preferred, uh, uh, the 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 seemingly paradoxical idea of anarcho-monarchism would be my really my preferred mode mode of governance governance in the sense that individual. Citizens of a citizens of a realm have as much personal freedom under a free market as really is possible. But at the end of the day, I can't go the whole hog with like the libertarian thing that because to a certain degree that I think there does have to be this 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 backbone of some type of governance. And I see that the especially Hans Hermann Hoppers writing around you know a monarch king. You realize why it is they you know they can't start just taxing their citizens tons, and they do have to care about their land and etc. etc. They they actually have this um, uh, what do you call it? Not sunk costs, but an investment in in it in a personal level, which is much more important. Um, and yeah, um, so yeah, I'm sympathetic to monarchy. Um, what is your thought on analytical philosophers like Wittgenstein, Frege, Russell or Davidson? Um, haven't spent a ton of time with Russell, none with Davidson and none with Frege, but I, I adore Wittgenstein, you know, and um, 
Yeah. It's very difficult to talk about Wittgenstein because what 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 are we talking about? I mean, I spent some time with the Tractatus and and of course I did the episode with Miles Hollingsworth and really I I adored that book because that was how I how I'd thought about Wittgenstein but didn't really have any, anywhere close of the articulation of Hollingsworth to be able to put it down on paper. And so I saw him more as that kind of figure is that this his his struggles in the terms of defining things of of trying to get to the truth of the matter wasn't this like solely like abstract philosophical thing but it, it really was in the end of the day for 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 man for, for for there was a part of care in that um but yeah um looking forward to the albert schweitzer interview yep it's I, i'm very pleased with it um it was very good uh, I followed David Harvey's lectures series on Capital a few years ago while reading the text. I found it absolutely fascinating. See, now, when I was trying to get into Das Capital, Karl Marx's Capital, years ago now, I remember, you know, putting out the feelers of like, okay, well, what, what, what can I be reading around this to sort of help me? And some, someone, like one person mentions David Harvey, right? And then the next comment is, you can't be serious, you know? So you immediately get into what is often a very left-wing problem of someone mentions a thinker and they say well you read this alongside it's really good commentary and someone says no no they absolutely obscure the point and so i'd like to read david harvey but a lot of people also don't take david harvey very seriously in in marxist circles i i I, that that was my understanding um but you know he's sort of the most most well-known commentary on on capital um who, so this question also got asked in the, the Discord as well and the Patreon. Who are the three thinkers I would like to put in a room? Uh, at the moment, it is still Gurdjieff, still George Gurdjieff. Uh, it would be George Gurdjieff, Ernst Jünger and uh, Edith Stein. be a very intense room uh, because one, I would be in front of a saint, which would be very... I don't know what I'd really do. And then, of course, Gurdjieff is very intense and so is Jünger. So it'd be a, a fairly potent and room, room full of presence. Um, it'd be an interesting room as well. Jünger and Gurdjieff most certainly met. And, of course, Jünger being a, a Nazi who was critical of Nazism and then Stein, of course, being killed in Auschwitz. I mean, it would. It, I think it would be a, an important conversation. And Jünger, at the end of his life, converting to Catholicism, being in front of this Catholic saint who died sort of under the regime that he was in i think it would be a fascinating conversation um would i ever have paul king's north back on hermetics i emailed paul about possibly doing a christmas special but i'm sure he's extremely busy but i'd love to have him back on yeah um am i interested in any of kierkegaard's ideas despite his protestantism um well from my understanding i mean you i'm not sure we can i don't know too much here but i don't think can we consider Kierkegaard a Protestant? I, from my understanding, that he he was just a sort of a free Christian by the end of, by the end of it all. That might be wrong. That might be wrong. Um, I tried to read Kierkegaard the other day. I tried to read. Yeah, everyone says start with fear and trembling, and I and I went into this with the impression that Kierkegaard was this existential poet, and it was some of the most dense rubbish writing I'd ever read. So unless I've got a bad translation, um, I couldn't really make heads or tails on it of it i mean the idea of kierkegaard's that um that i I generally turn to a lot is the leap of faith and i i agree with it you know you can read and read and read and read and and research your faith and do all many different things and get up to like what i'd say is 95 percent faith but there is this point of you got to take the leap you got to have faith that's what faith is so that idea will always be a mainstay in a way uh someone someone asked about getting on 
I've been looking for a basically long short of gain on is I've been looking for a long time for someone to talk about gain on with and I've yet to find anyone um thoughts on all the pretty horses haven't read the other two books in the board of trilogy I mean it's McCarthy I'll I'll he he, he really is my favorite favorite author um fiction wise he is my favorite author I, I can't see how someone can write that well and that beautifully it's it's astounding to me my thoughts on all the pretty horses is that it just start i would maybe now say start there the prison section is this sudden lurch into just this other realm of absolutely destitute and uh base consciousness of man this basically just enters into this hell of you know and it makes me think i mean mccarthy uh, i was talking to someone and i was talking to cyber actually about this in the discord about mccarthy doesn't he said you know he doesn't do fictional stuff he 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 researches meticulously his books so this prison would have been as i understand it would have been a real sort of a real articulation of of what the prison would have been like and it really is just an old sort of fort in the middle of the desert and all it is is the, the people who are arrested, you just put them in there. And these are the worst of the worst of the most illiterate, foul human beings. And the two young men, Grady and Rawlins in, in the book at that point, you know, it's just every day you got up and got the crap beat out of them and then eating like, you know, some beans on a dry tortilla. And it's it's absolutely awful. But it's at the same time, he just imbues it with such beauty that... The, the, the nature takes precedence over any of this and, and in, in his work suffering becomes something much more um, and then you know you go through to Stella Maris and the passenger and boy oh boy um, but yeah um, would you consider doing a crossover or collab episode with Novara Media always seeing the same people on your comments and intrigued by this thank you I mean Novara Media are much much bigger than me and uh, I mean I don't know what a crossover really would be about. Maybe about like capitalist realism and accelerationist politics. I'm I'm happy to talk to anyone. I, I've said someone messaged me the other day. They had a very small podcast and said like, "Would you, uh, would you, you know? I know we're a small podcast, but would you consider coming on?" And I just said like, you know, I don't I don't really mind. I, I, as long as anyone, as long as people are kind, I'm happy to talk to anyone about interesting ideas. That's all I really care about. As long as people are very English sentiment, I guess. As long as people are cordial or kind, yeah, like then yeah um what is my thought of Jacques Derrida it's funny you say that I'm very very close to finishing it and I think it's fantastic um an event perhaps biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon which is a brilliant little link because I, I just didn't have a didn't have a full grip of Derrida and um yeah I I, I can't can't disagree with him um I think ultimately he's extremely um extremely important i mean you know but and also he's one of the most misconstrued thinkers i mean i don't think he wasn't going into this in the sense of he and he even makes this clear very early on he wasn't going into this in the sense of destruction he's just making clear uh, evident things about how we read and interrogate texts as subjects you, you, you take in your own context with you and so deconstruction is almost default you you, you know <laughs> We see, look at the history of Bible commentary and you, you see that Derrida's been proven right the, the, the whole time. Um, but, yeah, and I... I, I, need to, I need to get to grips with... Uh, the only thing I've read is, um, you know, the, the, the infamous... The infamous... Uh, essay that he gave... Structure... 
sign structure, whatever that one is. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I, at, the, at the moment, my my, you know, just from Salmon's book, the, the I'm mostly in agreement. He's an exciting writer. Um, in regard to Marx, would you check out Ian Wright in particular? Capital is a real god. Harvey, I would recommend, but for some reason he disavows Marx's labor theory of value, which is slightly odd. Yeah, so this is we're already getting into the the, the, the dirt of of left wing and Marxist political theory, right? Of like, well, this person got it wrong, that person got it right. Um, but I'll check out Capital as a real god. Yeah, the one person I'd love to interview is the guy who wrote uh, the the book about capitalism and and Mammon. You know, the, the, but uh, it's a huge book. Did Gurdjieff ever practice a mainstream religion? Gurdjieff was a Russian, Russian Orthodox, and and by all accounts, by the end, he was he had a bit more to do with the the local Russian Orthodox church near him, and was it was and and, and there is a church in Paris that every year still has a a mass for for Gurdjieff. So, um, I would say that his. his he practiced a lot of different things, but I'd say orthodoxy. You could read Joseph Azizi's book on this. He draws in uh, the the Athos tradition into Gurdjieff and, and makes it clear, that especially Saint Simeon uh, from the Philokalia. Uh, his writings, especially on the text on sobriety by Saint Simeon, is is clearly Gurdjieff was very influenced by this. Where he found it, or what, in what sense he he, um, you know, understood it, or where he got it from, we don't know. But there, there's there's certainly influenced there what are my top three fiction writers McCarthy obviously but who are the other two so yeah, yeah Cormac McCarthy's top um David Foster Wallace would be there um hmm John Williams especially Stoner and well if we put him in it because I think we have to put him in it Emil Choron um because he's an aphorist, right? But if we're talking, if yeah, okay, I'll stick to the question. If we're talking fiction, fiction, I always just forget everything I've ever read. Um, hmm. I mean, Ernst Jünger's Ernst Jünger's fiction's very good, but in terms of, I mean, Nabokov as well. I love prose. I'm not one really for too much for too much function. I don't. I'd rather go if I want function in a book. I'll just go read a, the textbook of my. I'll go read my car manual if I want to just know where, what what the measurements of things are. And this person went into this room and then did this. And well, fine. Just tell me the end of the story now. If it's all about function, I'm more about prose and form and aesthetics over pretty much everything. Um, otherwise, I'm, it doesn't really interest me all that much. Um, so I would throw in there yeah, N- McCarthy, Nabokov, Foster Wallace. Um, I like all the post-American postmodernists. Delillo. Oh, actually, I'm not huge on Pynchon, to be fair. He's fine, but someone mentioned this the other day, and I agreed with him that he's he's become outdated. <laughs> the references are all a bit... Mm, we've gone a bit past the sort of 60s current now. Um, thanks for having Paul Bishop on regarding Ludwig Klagers. No worries. Thank you. Uh, it helped me to read Husserl Understanderers and to go back to Husserl. Back to them, back and forth, back and forth. Now I actually get... Yeah, the, so there's... The two books that really help for me on Husserl is Zahavi's Husserl's Phenomenology, very short, splits Husserl into three eras. It's honestly like 150 pages. You get a good um, chunk of Husserl and you understand it very quickly. And there's also just a book called Husserl by... 
it might be Dermot Moran. I actually might be Moran who wrote the intro, like one of those introduction to phenomenology books, which is really, really good as well. And that's by Routledge. Um, I like his cell though. I, I, I would like to try and find his cell biography, but I'm not sure if there's been sort of a big one written. Um, thoughts on Gnosticism in relation to McCarthy. Um, whether or not he is a Gnostic himself, I don't want to comment, but there's there's huge Gnostic elements. He's always mentioning Dijins, those Islamic demons. Um, you know, people think that, you know, the, the idea of a Dijin comes in actually in All the Pretty Horses, comes in very early in his work, and he carries that idea all the way through. And then if you've read his latest novels, which I'm not going to, you can't, re- I can't really spoil them, but there's no spoilers here. There's this a mention of the thing called the Architron, which is like the guardian of a gate. And beyond it, actually, there's this idea that this life's fairly bad, but when we die, much worse is coming. And there's, Gnost- there's Gnostic, there's Gnostic elements there. Um, Personally, I'm not sure he maybe is a practicing Catholic. I don't know. But, you know, he grew up, I believe, in a Catholic household. And, and the, the Catholicism is imbued within his work. But whether or not he practices now, I don't know. He says he's pretty much a materialist. Don't know about that. Um, someone, so back to the other questions. So keep the questions coming. Um, back to the other questions from the Discord and the Patreon. What idea, belief, do you think is the most dangerous to a society? Idea or belief... Uh, well, the myth of the myth of progress is extremely dangerous. You know, the myth that we're forever going forward and everything's going to be better without any real coherent end that that progress is targeting targeted towards. Extremely dangerous. I mean, I'm trying to think. The problem is, what do people believe now? I mean, the problem is now we 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 have what we deem as a lack of belief. We we're in the era of. The hegemony of anti-hegemony, which is the most dangerous one because you don't... So, there's a dangerous idea or belief, is the idea that you've somehow got outside of constrained hegemonic thinking, right? Oh, look, we can see modernism, we can see fascism, we can see all these isms. So, we in this era, which is post-ism, I'm not going to say post-modernism, but like post-ism post-hegemonic thinking, we must be outside of it. But that itself has become a hegemony where nothing is allowed to grow, but that hegemony is still there and we, we, we keep denying it. Um, and, you know, Husserl, going back to Husserl, he's basically, you know, he, I think he puts this brilliantly early in volume one of the Logical Investigations. He basically says, any theory which can begin by allowing relativism negates its possibility of ever being a coherent theory. So, like, The anti-hegemony is like a hegemony which can never be. So we're stuck in this, like, just whirring at the moment and nothing nothing can be planted. And I don't really know what it's going to take, somehow, some weird form of vitalism, or I don't know, for someone to just launch a flag down and say, like, you know, can you just piss off with this relativist stuff? Here's an anchor. Because you can't move anywhere if you don't have, have that. You can't do anything. It's very difficult. Um, yeah. Um... Yeah, idea and belief, dangerous society. It's a society. It's a lot. Whatever's making what we have now. I mean, the, the, it's more of a lack of ideas and beliefs which are really what we have now. I mean, we see this in the in the sense of, you know, the new Canadian healthcare stuff. In like, well, someone, someone, someone's really, really unwell and in pain, and they can't really consent to anything. So we're just going to kill them. And it's like, well without any lacks, when you completely lack all these ideas and beliefs regarding sanctity of human life, people become just 
productive vessels for production and ultimately once you become unproductive and you can't just produce for yourself in the sense that you don't need the state once you need the state and you can't produce well just gonna kill you that seems to be the way we're going um uh someone said do i read poetry as well as prose um i really like tolkien's poetry especially the tom bombadil poetry i think i think i think tolkien's poetry is often overlooked because it's scattered throughout his books and um especially and his songs as well i, I think he's He's almost like underappreciated as a poet because we think of him as a novelist. Um, but I also like a lot of the more, I mean, they're fairly popular poets that I like, but Philip Larkin is one I like, uh, you know. Um, Seamus Haney. Um, yeah. Other than that, I've never really sat down and read a book of poetry. There's a few that I'd like to get through, but... You know, never, never, not not as big into poetry as I am in prose. How is my peat journey going? What's my current diet like? My current diet is the one I posted to to Twitter. So I, I drink a orange, like maybe half a, half a liter of orange juice and half a liter of whole milk every day. And I have maybe three coffees with cream and sugar. And then I'll have the carrot salad about three times a week. I don't eat that every day. And then I have a lot of, I make sure I have a liver about twice a week, actually. And then other than that, I'll eat like potato, beef, raw veg, like cucumber. I eat mushrooms, uh, anything anti-aromatase inhibitors and anything that's de decreasing the estrogen basically in the system and increasing body heat is is, is important. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty basic diet really and it's very, very affordable. <laughs> Favorite painters from 15th century onwards one or two from each century I, I i'm terrible with dates so i can't give you that um favorite i just i can give you favorite painters they're mostly modern gerhard richter is my favorite painter um i like clifford still who was one of the underappreciated abstract expressionists i like ad reinhardt who painted these beautiful black paintings um i like Meliovich and the supremacist suprematist movement um I like <laughs> I like people who paint massive black paintings, basically that are very bleak. Um, uh, yeah, and and then at the moment I'm really into Frederick Remington. He's my probably my favourite painter at the moment. This brilliant old West painter. That's because I've been reading too much McCarthy. Um, yeah, um, right. So after that was a big question. How do I view electricity, keeping in mind its role in technological growth and the teaching of Valentin Tomberg? Um, leaving aside the psychic and mental aspects of electricity, how do you view the physical aspect? For example, do I make any attempt to minimize my use of electricity? I don't have any electrical things in my bedroom at all. And I, leave, I now leave even my phone, which is now just a flip phone, um, which I haven't gone back to my smartphone. I don't think I ever will. But I don't have any electrical devices in my bedroom um, and I don't, you know, I'm sat in front of the computer all day. Um, but the main thing I would try and minimize, so like, this is wired. I don't really like Wi-Fi. I don't have a microwave, anything with, with waves. I'm not huge on. And like, if I'm not using something, it's switched off at the wall and unplugged because yeah. Um, as far as my own understanding of electricity in, in, in maybe the alternative senses, I would go read Arthur Furstenberg Berger's 
think so I've, I've either Arthur and it's definitely Arthur but it's Furstenberg or Furstenberger his book The Invisible Rainbow uh, which is incredibly well researched point about how each cyclic iteration of a big uh, innovation in, in universal or, or global electricity use so like here's telegraph poles the telegram here's um the radio here's tv here's 4g whatever it might be every single time this has happened there is a spike in illness cases um specifically flu and these cases aren't aren't uh constrained in the sense that would adhere to any idea of germ theory so like people are getting flu spontaneously in places which are often completely um outside of any bounds so like people you know there's one instance where people the navy on a navy ship are getting the flu at the same time people inland you know however many miles away it is are getting the flu and it's due to an it for, for for Furstenberg it's due to an iteration of of uh of electricity and I mean that book it sounds ridiculous but there's almost like 150 pages of referencing and and you know at the end of the day that's what the scientific method is and if you read it and it's well researched and the evidence is there then you know um go see it but in terms of i mean what we what we should be quick to not ignore because sometimes when we think of electricity we think of it as like the thing that powers this screen and allows the pixels to light up and allows you know the electrical appliance i mean we're full of electricity our brain is electrical right like <laughs> we are there is this thing called electricity which is very peculiar um so it's it's always good to think about it in those terms as well someone asked me this and I don't actually know what they mean in this context. Someone said, have I ever gotten filtered by a book? So if someone could explain to me what getting filtered by something means. I hope I'm not being ignorant with that, but I don't, I couldn't, I did look it up, but I didn't really understand what it means. I think there's a social meaning for it. So someone asks, and I like this question actually, um, what do I think the future of philosophy is as a field? Will online creators continue to become more relevant and supplant traditional academics? Or will academia still remain dominant in terms of defining the field for the foreseeable future? Um, the future of philosophy, I mean, philosophy is always going to be around because people are always going to be thinking about, you know, we're existential beings. We're always going to be questioning things. Um, as far, as far as the main question there of like, you know, what's, what's the ongoing dialogue going to be like between creators and academia writ large? Um, it, it's a difficult one because the, what we would call the legitimacy of being like a well-known or knowledgeable scholar or philosopher is still reliant on the credentials, which are supplied to us by academia. So when you see people who are doing these autodidactic courses like i've done a couple online usually the biography of the person who's giving it says i have a phd or an ma in this or that thing so like there's still this reliance on this person knows what they're on about because of the credential so what maybe would be the future is that universities as they are at the moment basically become these businesses just for getting someone the little tick on the box to say you have these letters at the end of your name and then that allows someone to go off and do their their own practice and that seems to be happening in the medical profession as well someone gets a license and then they go run a holistic practice or someone gets like a counseling license and then they go that, that allows them to go perform an alternative form of counseling that they found more effective than cbt or whatever right um so maybe i would say that that's going to happen because ultimately when it comes to philosophy a lot of 
as it comes to social sciences as well, a lot of people are realizing that the money that you're spending on a university education isn't going to pay off in terms of getting a job and getting an income in the world. But the people who want to do these degrees are still interested in the subjects and they want to learn them in a, in a formal, rigorous sense from someone who knows what they're on about. So the in-between of that is instead of spending £9,000 for the year on what is usually two modules at a university or two or three, maybe four modules at a university for the year for £9,000, you spend money on an, on an autodidactic course online with a, with a tutor and the course seems expensive because it's like £1,000 for, I don't know, 10 lectures, but you're learning exactly what you want to learn in a rigorous way with a tutor and instead, and you're not in debt and, and it's more, you just want to learn it for the sake of it. And in a way, it's a healthier attitude towards philosophy, I think. And you also learn what you want to learn. And it also gives, for me, what I like about that is it gives a lot of opening for, you know, strange courses again. People aren't going to be, you know, you can go, right, I'm going to go do a course on Ludwig Klagers. Or I'm going to go do a course on Gurdjieff or whatever, right? That's That for me is extremely um, positive aspect. As for the academy itself, I mean, you know, you could just look around. I mean, philosophy courses, big ones are closing down. They either don't have, you know, they're not getting the funding anymore or whatever it might be. I mean, it's just unfortunate. But if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Um, so they also said, is there any historical analogies here as... Uh, universities are, of course, a fairly recent thing, while philosophy is. Universities are a recent thing, but the academy is as, is as old as what we in the West would consider philosophy, right? If Plato begins with the academy, there's always been formal schools of philosophy. And maybe in a way we need to move back to that of people who uh, you know, truly believe in something, so they go to the master and spend time under him. That would be great. Uh, two, any recommendations or preferences on aesthetics, especially contemporary thinkers that focus on religion or technology? Um... Um, yeah, Lewis Mumford. Lewis Mumford's good. That would be, you know, especially on technology, aesthetics. I don't read aesthetics very much. Um, my, I've always been just way more into Like, I didn't... My philosophical scope when it comes to, like, genuine interest has always been, like, huge things. Like, how do we know what we know? Or, and if aesthetics comes into that, then it's always in relation to how do we know what we know or something like that, right? Like epistemology, metaphysics, those are the those are the big things for me. Like God as well, of course. Um, someone asks, uh, they're curious if I've ever read Alistair Crowley's book on the tarot. Um, what are my thoughts on his tarot? Uh, I haven't read it, so I can't give you uh, thoughts. Um, and then they also had a follow-up question. They feel like most dysfunction in society is solved with inward work, but what are the problems of narcissism in that idea? Or is it right? How is the tension solved? Well, Christopher Lash, of course, in um, the, the culture of narcissism, puts forward that everyone's becoming no more narcissistic. The, pr the problem, of course, with narcissism in relation to the in like inner work is that for inner work, you have to look you have to know yourself as the oracles of Delphi would say, right? You have to know thyself. And the problem is, is if thyself has created such a strong mask, which it believes it's no, it's, it knows itself, then all you're ever looking into is an artificial self. And that, that's never going to go anywhere. And you just end up self-justifying what it is you're doing and being like, oh, I knew I was right all along. Um, um, how is the tension of narcissism solved? I mean, it, uh, it's, a, it's the question which has plagued psychologists and psychoanalysts basically since the beginning is how do you treat someone who believes, you know, who, who has, who has grown up in such a way or has developed in such a way that 
every part of their being and every part of their psychology tells them that the insane way, quite literally, that they are living is sane, right? Because you, you're trying to prove to someone that they're like, they're not sane. And if all of their mechanisms have told them that they are, and this is a big problem of like, I was reading Alexander Lowen recently about this. And he's saying that as the, as the narcissistic tendencies of society sort of accelerate, you end up into that Krishnamurti quote of like, you're becoming conditioned to an unhealthy society. So you become in health unhealthy. So eventually you have like, you know, a world where everyone is narcissistic is a world where everyone is insane, but the last sane person seems insane. Um, you know, their their kindness, their genuine empathy, their genuine charity, their genuine humility appears as from the view of a narcissist as like a a um a controlled false act, and it's very difficult to you know, it's very difficult to untangle that. I mean, the book, the book just called Narcissism by Alexander Lowen is really good. And of course, Christopher Lash's book on narcissism is, is two great starting places on that. Um, what is your thought of John Searle and the discipline of the philosophy of mind? Uh, I haven't read Searle, I'm, a, I'm afraid. As for philosophy of mind, I, you know, it's one of those things where as a continental, I'm like, well, let's just get back to Kant. Let's get back to brass tacks. If we're talking about mind, let's get back to Searle. Um, you know, let's make sure we avoid psychologism and take these things seriously. That would be, you know, that would be where I would begin. Um... Any thoughts on Matthias Desmet's mass formation psychosis? I haven't read Desmet, but in terms of like mass formation psycho psychosis, I've got an episode coming up with, um, once again, with uh, Maurizio Loza, and we, we touch on, um, we touch on, you know, mass, for mass formation psychosis and mass formations in general, masses in general, and I think it's a definite thing. The, 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 the thing to remember is there isn't technically any such thing as a mob. Everyone is still an individual, but as those things grind on there appears to be such a thing as a mob but as Ernst Jünger points out everyone becomes an individual again when you start firing a machine gun at them right when you fire a machine gun at the mob everyone reality comes back and bites you and it's very easy to get pulled up in you know in the in the the swing of a mob but a conscious shock will send you out of that very quickly and then people have that moment of like oh actually what do I actually really believe am I really in this um yeah it's difficult um I grew up secular, but never have been atheistic. Lately, I find myself having a new but fluctuating faith in God. How can one nurture the fledgling faith? Don't, um, don't put too much pressure on yourself, especially early on when you start reading all these, you know, as many people do, they'll, they'll jump in heavy and they'll read everything and anything. And that you start coming across ascetics and saints and these people who've gone the whole way, you know, they're living in the woods or whatever it might be or something like that. And one thing to remember is that's a calling, that's a vocation that will come, that's providence, it will come whether or not it, it, it arrives or not. One thing to think early on with a fledgling faith is to realize, I think, that you, some people, I, and this is my own understanding, but it's helped me a lot. Whether or not it's true or not, I mean, you know, maybe a priest will listen and email me and say, James, what are you doing? But one big mistake I made early on was you you suddenly have this thing of sin and badness, which is in front of you. And you start to realize things about yourself, about how you've acted that, man, you know, I'm, I'm 
uh, you know, in the words of the church, like a worm, you know, I'm, and I'm now trying to be better. Now, one thing that, well, this is the mistake I made was, like I said, you read all these great saints, these great Christians or uh, Catholics or, or, or people of the church, and you realize they've, they've done all this good. And what, what the mistake I made was I tried to like, tried to imitate that too early on in the sense that almost like from a separate self. I was like, right, I'm now going to go be that. And then when I failed at that, that was where I saw the mercy of God or the mercy of Christ was when I failed at that. But in time after now, you know, two years and then one, almost one year of being Catholic in time, I realized that Christ's mercy is just for you. Were, you were made the way you are. And that doesn't mean not trying to get better and trying to progress spiritually and trying to spiritually grow and become a more moral person. But the mercy that Christ has for you is because you are fallible, is because you're imperfect. You don't try to become perfect and then the mercy is when you fail at that. You you are imperfect and the mercy is for when you fall in that sense. And, you know, the advice, some advice I've been given is some people really beat themselves up about when they fall and they, they're like, well, I've fallen and that's not where the mercy is. I'm just an idiot, blah, blah, blah I'm a moron. The, the mercy is found in how often again and how quickly you can get back up and go, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm fallen. This is part and parcel of what it is to be human. I'm going to get back up again and I'm going to keep trying. And that is where faith is found in. That's really where mercy, the acceptance and understanding of mercy is found. It's not, oh, I failed at some big grand gesture of charity and humility or whatever it might be that you think, which can become prideful in itself. It's, I'm a, I'm a fallen human. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm going to keep trying. I fell again. You know, you go confess. You see yourself for yourself as you, as you confess. You see what you've done and how you are right in front of you. And you go, you know, I'm going to pull myself back up and I'm just going to get on again. I'm going to get back up. Um, that would be my advice for, for the faith. Of course, prayer, personal prayer is extremely important. You know, you know, I'm not big for prayers of rote, you know, da, 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 every night, you know, I'm, I can't really do that. I'm much more prayer while I walk prayer when I'm like, yeah, my heart's telling me to say a prayer for, for whatever it is. Um, you know, as St. Teresa of Avila says, God is, is among the pots and pans, you know, it's, it's not, you know, he's in the mass, he's, he's in the church. Um, but he's also among the pots and pans and it's like making your life a prayer and trying to remember God as much as you can is prayer in itself. So don't be too hard on yourself because anything that is given by grace is given by grace and will be there if you open yourself to it. So don't, you know, don't like you see people praying and they're like tensing up, like trying to send a prayer out of the tops of their fingertips or something. It's like, just, just allow it. Like, you know, God's mercy is there for who you are already, Right. Um, and, and to accept that is to then open yourself up to a much deeper and more humble and honest form of, you know, this is who I am and I'll try to get better here instead of like this imitation. So imitating Christ, but from from where you are and, and accepting that forthwith. Um, uh, where was the next one? Uh, someone's again asked here, what's my answer to the hermetics question? I've already answered that. Someone said, I recently became Catholic after being a quite obnoxious atheist for a long time. What have been the most interesting responses to your conversion, positive or negative? Do you think there's a new openness to the religion among intellectuals, even as secularization continues? Or is that just wishful thinking, the view from the bubble? 
Um, in terms of um, responses to my conversion, of course you have people who are like, oh, he's become Tradcath, what will it be next, you know? Um, fine, you know? I'm not, I'm not here to, I'm actually not here as a, like a missionary, I don't think, I was an, a, I was an atheist, right? So, I know, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, the door from hell is closed from the inside, right? And if, if, if someone has closed that door to God from the inside, me pushing on it is not going to do any good until they even just, oh, why is that? Why is that, right? Until they do that, I, you, you can't, you can't, you can't arm wrestle someone to Christ, unfortunately, because it's not faith in that sense. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm not massively interested in that aspect in it in a way um but in people's responses to it i mean i think a lot of people just sort of maybe shy away a little bit because it's like it's a big thing they don't really get why someone would do it um a lot of people knew me before and irl as a as a you know sort of um as i said before a militant atheist for my young life so there was a bit like oh but most most people are just happy for you you do and i think some people are maybe maybe a bit like concerned in the sense of that makes them think about um what what you know you suddenly say i've started going to church i've started praying i mean ultimately the first some of the first thoughts of what to think about what you what one thinks about and connects to god is death you know oh where are we going why am i doing so i think for a lot of people it's almost like asking a big existential question and they're like oh oh i don't really know what to do with this so and you know uh at the end of the day, Christ is Christ is unconditionally merciful. So that's what you got to remember. Um, uh, do oh, and also, do I think there's a new openness to religion from intellectuals? My yeah, I do. But my worry is that the openness comes from once again something I spoke about with Esme Partridge when we did the podcast on mysticism and modernity a while back about this idea of sort of bracketing off religion and we like we'll draw in religious tradition as a socio-cultural artifact. So it's like oh, I'm open to religion, but I'm going to take it seriously only in an intellectual academic sense, which which inherently removes the conditions which make it what it is altogether, right? You can't talk about religion without accepting that people who are talking about religion have a sincere faith in God. So some people are open to it only on that intellectual academic level, which I think is destructive. I think it's very, very destructive, and I'd rather they just went away. Do I think there's an openness to it? I think the openness to it isn't necessarily from intellectuals. I think it's from uh, from from maybe an intellectual culture, which has hit so many dead ends over and over and over again because of relativism, that people people are, you know, they doing the, they're performing the Augustinian retreat to God. Return to God. Whoops, we went down this road, didn't work out. Yeah, this is really bad and dumb. And I can see you know, I can see, I can understand what faith and warmth and love are now from this position. Once again, like you get through suffering, you experience horrible sufferings and death and things like that, or or the death of culture, and you experience the existential nihilism of of the world, and you go, yeah, that's not a good place to be. Let's head on back. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not weak. That's, that takes a strength. It takes a courage. Let me tell you. Um, uh, and then someone says thoughts. On attempts to construct a Catholic politics, just distribution, integralism. I don't know much about integralism, and I really, I, I literally have a surface level understanding of distrib- distributism. Um, and from my surface level understanding of it, I'm not for it actually, because uh, I believe in 
really i i still believe in in personal liberty and religious freedoms so in the sense that uh, you know, if you had a theocracy in the sense of the Catholic government, what would be a Catholic government distributes property? That property is no longer private, and I'm I'm a firm believer in private property, so I'm not for it in that sense of, even though I'm Catholic, there's plenty of people who aren't, and I don't don't feel it right that just because I agree with the government, I'll go, oh right, you now you're now you don't really have private property, and it's not going to be distributed to you because of whatever i may have got that wrong i may have got that wrong but um i'm much more on the side of there is no political solution find the good way find the good way you can find faith where you can there's good people out there there's humility out there there's kindness out there find that way you can but there's no political solution it's it's, it's cycles you look at any cycle you look at, look at chondriet uh Kondretiev waves as i am at the moment k waves and you realize everything just goes up and down up and down humans aren't all that all that smart really you know we we go back and forward and then the people who are at the peak think that the thing we need to get to is the bottom of the peak and then the people who are then born you know we're not very good at passing on information basically and it wants you sort of you know i did like cormac mccarthy in that interview he says yeah i'm pessimistic about the world but that doesn't mean i have to be fucking miserable and that's i would say that's pretty much where i'm at you know i'm, I'm pessimistic about things but i'm having a good time it's all pretty, it's all pretty good. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, oh, you know, things are, you know, things are, things are collapsing. Um, people aren't really interested in big questions anymore. The family unit, you know, family units are collapsing. Um, birth rates are down. Fertility rates are down. All these oil prices are going through the roof. We're, we're closing in on peak oil. All these horrible things you can go, yeah, they're happening, but they're not on my doorstep just yet and we can do things and in a in a very probably a very naive way i'd say yeah but i'm about to have my dinner and that's going to be right now that's going to be pretty tasty um and i to think any other way you're entering into an, a madness which is very egotistical you know as if as if you're going to step outside and be like right i've got to sort out peak oil or i'm gonna just slow down you know who are you um so you know there's no political solution, but that doesn't have to get you down. There's, there's good stuff in the world, you know? Do, uh, do I indulge in regular meditation? Any experiences, if so? Uh, I used to do the uh, the Gurdjieff morning preparation every morning, which was just sit in a meditative position with your eyes closed and focus on the feeling in your feet. Um, and I found that one probably the most helpful one I've done. It just gives you, it sets you up for the day, makes you calmer, makes you more productive in the sense that you don't, don't procrastinate as much. Um... And occasionally, you know, I, I fall in and out of meditation because it's, it's you know, it's, it's sort of not, not the thing for the Western mind, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, oh, so keep the questions coming um, and I'll ask, uh, answer whatever's asked. Um, thoughts on Oswald Spengler? Spengler? <laughs> Oswald Spengler. Oswald Spengler, the ancient city and other works that suggest a time limit on our, our culture. Does Western civilization dying mean the death of Christianity as well? Well, Christianity is not just in Western civilization. It's all over. It's all over there. It's over the whole globe. Um, it's very difficult because what what you've civilization has become to be understood in a very material sense. When we think of civilization, well, at least I and I think many people would think of skyscrapers, complex systems. It's a very material thing. Christianity is an internal thing. It's in the heart, and it's also the kingdom of God, which is above. So, in the sense that. Oh, the civilization, which is really just the means to be able to have the material 
thing things for the rituals of Christianity isn't really you know if one and two are there together then I'm there in spirit that's the church you don't you don't need all this stuff to practice it so the death the death of Christianity will be when you know the last the last heartfelt believer in Christ dies that would be the death of Christianity and and you know in the sense that the orthodox talk about how you know monk monastics pray for the world well I like to think well that means that when the last monastery falls that will be when the world ends right um yeah so the death of civilization won't mean the, the death of Christianity um Christianity did fairly well at times without civilization um modified Hamidic's question if I had to choose three Hamidic's guests to place in a room and listen to the conversation who would they be it would be John Michael Greer Abdul Hakim Marad and um hmm 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 maybe yeah, John Michael Gray, Abdul Hakim Murad, and maybe like like Paul Kingsnorth or something. Put a Christian in there as well. So it's people who have a very expansive understanding of the limits of modernity in relation to tradition and religion. I think it would be an absolutely fascinating conversation. How do I think David Foster Wallace's thought would have evolved where he's still alive? Also, were you aware he was interested in converting and apparently attended RCIA twice? Um... How do I think it would have evolved? I think Pale King would have been an absolute masterpiece. Not that it isn't already. Um, but it might have almost become like a parody of itself in a way that he might have struggled to know what to do with it. Like Because this gen the, the world we're in now is just an acceleration of what was going on in, in Infinite Jest to like the nth degree. So the point after that is like, well, where do you go from it? But it would have been nice to see him develop the idea of like post-irony post and sincerity more. Um, we need that now. Um, I was aware that he had like a fairly f seemingly strong Christian conviction, but I think he really struggled to see that in, in the face of, you know, his, his modern attitude towards things and, 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 and yeah. Um, been a while since I've read any, but I've read everything he's written. Uh, yeah. Um, hmm. So I guess, you know, as there's no questions in the in the chat, I'll wait for anyone to ask any more. Uh, one thing I should say is, of course, if you've enjoyed the podcast um, this year, please think about supporting because a small amount of money does go a very long way. Uh, thank you all, of course, for supporting. Thanks to my paying patrons very much for keeping everything going. And um, yeah, just, just, you know, thanks. Thanks for all the support. Um uh, the answer to the fiction question was Nabokov, John Williams, um, and then David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Um, trying to think. There is some. Uh, there is some Christmas specials that will be coming up. Though I'm not not going to put them as a premiere, so they're a surprise on the day. So there's a few Christmas specials coming up. And then I've got content all the way through to the new year. But yeah, other than that, um, other than that, this has been fun. And uh, I'll give it a couple of minutes to see if there's any more questions.
Doesn't look to be. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into the Q&A. These are always very fun. And um, yeah, I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. 